वेलकम टू सिंटॉक The Sintalkers around the table today discuss the whole in parts. We'll think about the deep and surprising relationships between wholes and parts in various natural and conceptual systems. How can the various whole part schemes help us understand the nature of the world? We may look at concepts such as atomism, emergentism and structuralism. Why is the whole usually so different from the parts whether in an organism, society, road traffic or sentences or internet for that matter? We'll also wonder about the long-term future of systems thinking. We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers around the table today. Dr. Rajneesh Kumar Mishra, who is trained in linguistics and philosophy, and is particularly interested in the various aspects of language and how it links to thought and reality. Professor B. J. Rao, who is a geneticist, and he looks at biology from a systems point of view, and is particularly focused. in understanding how biology sustain and evolves in the context of the material world and things of biology as a special form of material physics he is from TIFR in bombay and professor shetabro sinha who is by training a physicist and who likes to use the tools of physics to understand complex systems across a vast spectrum from cells to society he is from IMSC in chennai Professor Rao, maybe we set the ball rolling with you. Um, when you are a geneticist, uh, you think about cells and you look at cells maybe on a daily basis, or at least think about them. When you look at a cell in its in its raw form, does it give you any clues? Uh, your epistemological baggage and knowledge, notwithstanding, of how what kind of holes it might result into. Uh, does the does the atomistic form give any sense of the hole that it might emerge into? cell is a very special form of creation mm-hmm. made up of material and energy the beauty of cell cell is just a unit of biology right mm-hmm. many cells constitute tissues and organisms etc etc so this unit seems to have acquired very special properties where molecular systems when they combine together bring in lot more functionality than what they are when they are apart okay it is not simply a bag full of chemicals it seems to be much more than that it has it is a product of evolution and it is going towards further evolution mm-hmm. and it is contingent upon what it is interacting with in its surroundings so in some sense the physics of material world has achieved special climax that's very interesting it's interesting In use the word biological mm-hmm. realm now i do not know whether the current laws of physics can fully explain the totality of cellular functions mm-hmm. and i'm talking to you with full confidence that 
we know a lot about modular nature of cellular functions a lot of details have been worked out but at the end of the day i do not know whether i know how these modules are put together how they are put together into the totality that we see so bjr what is it that one understands inadequately it's the what or the how is the what of the atom or the cell or if i the, take the a, how of the composition and how it comes together if i take a lego toy puzzle mm-hmm. lego toys are made up of components yeah you can tease apart into individual components put them into multiple multiple frameworks mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that happens during evolution mm mm-hmm. in the form of cells tissues organisms ecology etc etc mm-hmm. now if i am given all these lego pieces and asked to put into a sustainable functional evolving system i do not know how to put them into right so the connectivities that operate in the network obviously follow certain physical laws mm-hmm. we are far from understanding what those physical laws are how they are controlled by the laws of thermodynamics mm-hmm. and the universal physical constants Mm-hmm. and how as a setting we have come about in a narrow narrow window of occurrence mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's almost it's almost it mystical it seems like you 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 is it a matter of accident that a cell has come to be the the popular uh, belief is that we are all accidents mm-hmm. and i want to believe that yeah that is a simple model mm-hmm. but having believed that simple model i do not know how to go further because i do not know how these physical universal constants have come together into this assemblage of very special material world biology i yeah. want to understand that but i i i do not know how to demystify the laws of network that operate in biology mm. i know the modules well enough mm. so it's a very interesting uh, you know uh, situation where you know the pieces of lego toy you know how the pieces work you know how well you can rearrange the pieces into multiple forms but how biological systems decide those multiple forms how they sustain how they evolve into different forms and that's very interesting and even when we use the word cells i mean there are different kinds of cells aren't there yeah, um, yeah absolutely so e- even the cell is not a monolithic single type absolutely, of cell absolutely absolutely very yeah, interesting yeah. there is something unitary about cell but there is something much more than unitariness so what is that so would you call a cell a part or certain kind of a whole it is both it's both of course hmm. there are fantastic unicellular organisms which can do fantastic functions mm-hmm in different such as what when you say fantastic you, you can <laughs> take organisms which are living in minus 200 degree centigrade mm-hmm. to plus 100 degree centigrade doing biology very very well mm i can't think of physics that can operate so well between this regime of conditions mm obviously physical laws are operating mm i want to understand how these physical laws are operating in this multiple regimes mm maintaining the so called unitary force called life mm Yeah, interesting. Interesting. So you I can take a cell put into any conditions it evolves into those conditions, you know, suitable to those conditions. So there is this tremendous, you know, 
tremendous powers, quote-unquote, in these biological systems to adopt into the condition that they are put in. And, uh, you know, maybe there's the last question before we go to the others and we'll unravel them further on in this episode. But is there one unit of life? I mean, obviously, the, uh, the, the fragments below the level of a cell are also living, aren't they? So when do you go from that stage of being living to non-living? Which is that? Which is that most fundamental living part? Okay, this is the transition that you are talking about. Yes, we know that there are certain self-emergent systems mm-hmm. where molecular complexes, when they are put together in certain ways, can emerge into functioning functioning entities. Right, but all these functioning entities should self-sustain and should evolve. That transition has happened from viruses into cells. So there is, a, there is obviously a transition where self-sustaining physical systems become self-sustaining, evolving physical systems. Got it. And that's where this element of life comes in. Correct. Correct. Interesting. We'll get to that. Yeah. Rajneesh, maybe we jump to a somewhat different world in the yeah. world of... Uh, more philosophical concepts in the mm-hmm. world of words. Um, let's just pick one of the examples and we think about, when we think about a word, is, is a word a whole or a part? And would you deconstruct it further when we think of a sentence? Can we just deconstruct it and say, all right, this is this meaning and it's made, made of these three parts. Mm-hmm. How does that go? And what's the reflexive relationship between a word and a sentence and a sentence and a word and who gives meaning to whom? So it's mm-hmm. a very fascinating question. It'll be interesting to get your views on that. True. In fact, uh, uh, as you, um, BJ rightly pointed out, uh, these uh, issues uh, travel across the disciplines. Mm-hmm. You know, these are uh, such themes which have been discussed in various disciplines, mm-hmm. and particularly in this uh, context of language. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you examine uh, your own linguistic behavior. Do we, uh, the question we need to ask is, do we use words or do we use sentence? Okay. This is the important thing. So in that context, uh, we we think, uh, this is our experience that we always use sentences. A sentence may be uh, made of uh, just one word, mm-hmm. but that word contains the whole syntactic structure. Uh-huh. It is another thing that you are articulating it the full in the full form or you are just articulating one word so rajneesh what is a word word in a sense uh, you see it is defined in so many ways but one general definition is that uh, it is a sequence of sounds phonemes you know, sequence of phonemes sequence of phonemes the another aspect is that it must be meaningful it must relate to something some thought some concept some aspects of reality mm-hmm. so this meaning aspect is again very, I mean, there are two aspects of a word. One is it's what Saussure in uh, modern parlance says that it's acoustic image, acoustic sound image, image uh, yeah. sound image. of. And is it and, possible for a word to be just one single phoneme? It is possible, yes. Such there are what? many words uh, which, uh, which contains just one phoneme. Such yeah. as what? Such as like uh, na in itself. Yeah. No, <laughs> that's negation. <laughs> so there are many. There are, in no. fact, in a, if you go uh, scan through the Vedic and uh, Upanishadic literature, there are ekakshar, concept of ekakshar shabda. Okay. Uh, one syllable word. Uh, 
monosyllabic monosyllabic oh. and if you further go into this tantric uh, section of philosophy mm-hmm. in fact there is a concept of bija akshar mm-hmm. so one word one syllable mm-hmm. is a, a whole in itself okay. it's not a part it's whole in itself it's, as it has a monadic character like just like a cell mm. you know it's it's complete in itself mm-hmm. uh, what it does that does, mean i mean such as what i mean what would be a bijakshar bijakshar means uh, i think uh, this term is taken from tantra mm-hmm. and in tantra each sound mm-hmm. is a form of energy you know sound itself is energy so uh, it need not refer to something other than itself in itself it is complete uh, in in itself it is complete it's a complete entity so it's a that's why another t- term which the tantric system uses is a matrika for varna mm-hmm. it's a source of energy mm-hmm. so, uh, energy manifests itself that primordial energy manifests through these uh, bijakshras or uh, through these basic sounds and rajneesh it's interesting that you refer to sound time and again and but mm-hmm. somehow you don't refer to script um uh, so when you say that a word is composed of phonemes let's say morpheme is composed of phonemes mm-hmm. um why don't you say the same thing in a more literal script type of uh, sense there are two reasons mm-hmm. first of all sound doesn't uh, necessarily need a script to be represented because script relates to our visual perception right sound relates to your acoustic yes. you know mm-hmm. uh, auditory perception but are you are you ascribing a more fundamental nature to sound as opposed to the no, in fact if you, when you write mm-hmm. um, or when you represent in the scriptural form mm-hmm. uh, all dimensions of a sound are not represented in the scriptural form you know because the way i am speaking you can you if you write it will be a flat thing yes. it will be a flat thing uh, yes. this modulation and emphasis and many more things right uh, it's a complete expression in itself right when you write it, it will appear like an abstraction right uh, right right so right. Um, here uh, um, in 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 this tradition uh, we are not a scriptural people you know because uh, even the ved is called shruti shruti means that which is heard yes uh, so the sound in itself is very valuable and uh, not even a single syllable is to be altered or replaced by any other because meaning which we say mm-hmm. uh, is a, a it is a it emanates from that combination you know and so it's the, the interactions again which seem to somehow yeah, create yeah. meaning as yeah. opposed let's go back to the question we started with rajneesh mm-hmm. of where in the context of a sentence where does mm. the meaning come from is it the words and i know you've broken up the words a little bit further and made it more complicated which is fine mm-hmm. um but where does meaning come from is it the sentence meaning, or the words meaning is largely dependent on the structure okay the relationship which the components hold mm-hmm. with each other so i give you one example uh, english sentence very common john uh, killed the tiger yeah john killed the tiger the tiger killed john words are same so we can expect if the meaning uh, sentential meaning is just a sum total of the word meanings the meaning of these two sentences should have been the same yeah. but you know it is different <laughs> mm-hmm. 
So where is the difference? Is difference there an equivalent is... of that in biology, Bijara? Absolutely. I was just thinking about it. Mm-hmm. If you take uh, a gene, yes, gene has a directionality. Yes. You can flip it around in the reverse direction. And it does something it else. It becomes a different beast. <laughs> <laughs> man killed the tiger. Tiger killed the man. Same units, but can convey very, very different outcomes. Right? So, modules put together in different forms mean differently. Functionally and even otherwise. That's very interesting. So, there is a common thread here. I was just about to sort of uh, bring in another aspect. Please. Linguistics, of course, is a study of, you know, the language aspect of the sound. Mm. But sound is only as good as it is perceived. And perceiving systems have to evolve. Mm-hmm. So then the issue is whether language evolution and perceiving system evolution went is hand in hand Is there an element together. of co-evolution there? That's right. Mm. Mm. So that's a very exciting area and people are studying about it. It turns out that in the whole genome that we have, Mm-hmm. very few number of genes have contributed towards language ability evolution. Our ability to understand so language process. So what is process. striking about that? The fewness of it? See, at the end of it, large chunk of genome is performing mundane functions. <laughs> <laughs> but it's only a few mm-hmm. handful of genes that have made what we are. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. The discrimination has happened in that 1% of 100%. Maybe even less than 1%. The rest of the 99% is same in the re- you know in all you know uh yeah, world. Genes right. the so we are largely a baggage genome. <laughs> the discrimination happens in very very select number of handful genes and that's where the language ability was acquired. That's very So there's a lot of interesting genomics related to language evolution and what he's talking is essentially the tip of the iceberg. That's very interesting. We'll get back to the concept right. of the gene. Shitabro, when we let's think about the concept of emergentism, uh, in a sense, and you know, the physical systems have this amazing array of phenomena where emergentism happens in a manner which you just cannot make sense of if you looked at only the atomistic parts. Are there other are there are there instances of situations where emergentism is the most surprising in your view? Absolutely. I mean, you can think of something as fundamental as looking at the arrow of time. Yeah. Uh, so we normally know, for example, that uh, when we, you know, break something, you know, it just would fall into the ground and, you know, shatter in a, you know, several pieces. We don't normally expect that, you know, you look at something which is shattered in the ground that and it spontaneously comes it together, together, spontaneously comes together and then, you know, jumps into our hand. So, so if, if someone showed you a movie in which, you know, you showed both of these events, uh, you would know immediately that, you know, one of them is real and the other is just the film being played backward. Right. So if you look at the, in, in terms of the laws of physics, uh-huh. um, there's nothing preventing both of these situations playing out, you know, from the point of view of macroscopic physics, they are just as equally likely. So what is it that Even at the macroscopic scale? Yeah, so what is it that at the macroscopic scale gives the arrow of time? What makes one of them likely and the other extremely yeah, unlikely? Yeah, why is time irreversible at a certain scale exactly. and reversible? Exactly. So, so you know, if you, if you think them in terms of the atoms and the molecules and just applying the laws of mechanics as it applies to them, these laws are time reversible. Uh-huh. It doesn't matter whether you, you know, uh, you know, 
put the expression of time with just a negative uh, sign added in order to make time reversible so just to be clear so, it doesn't matter <laughs> at the microscopic scale uh yes so so the fact that the laws of physics which are completely time reversible at the microscopic scale become suddenly irreversible at the macroscopic scale is essentially coming about because of this emergence of the arrow of time as you go from the micro to the macro and why we, does that happen yes so we now understand this thanks to the genius of ludwig boltzmann um so so you know like traditionally these two aspects the micro and the macro had evolved independently yeah. so you had uh, you know galileo kepler newton who came up with the laws of motion of particles sure which applied to essentially single particles and you had uh, people like boyle charles and so on who looked at the phenomenological laws which you know essentially govern the relation between pressure volume temperature which are all macroscopic quantities right and until 19th century we had no clue how to connect the mm. domain of newton with the domain of this you know macroscopic uh, laws right until boltzmann came up with this ideas which essentially forms the bedrock of statistical mechanics the concept of entropy mm. where he said that once you start looking at a huge number of elements mm -hmm. which are interacting with each uh, you know all of them interacting and uh, forming some kind of a object macroscopic object you have new laws coming in namely the concept of entropy always increasing mm -hmm. which essentially brings in this arrow of time mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so once you go from the micro to the macro you bring in this concept of increasing entropy it's not just you know energy that you need to bother about which was always there in this laws of right. macroscopic physics right. but now right. this entropy comes about and entropy is something which arises only once you have a system of many particles interacting with each other and it's the entropy this principle that entropy always has to increase and where does the rubicon lie tha bro that's a very interesting question I mean, that's a very interesting question that mesoscopic so, scale yes. but i mean is it so so people have been asking this question that you know at what point can you start defining the macroscopic quantities like pressure volume temperature i mean certainly you can't define them at the level of a single particle sure but can you define them at the level of 10 particles or 100 particles and the other interesting question is that how sharp a transition is that is it it's it's not sharp it's that not that's sharp. that's what we understand mm -hmm. it's it's kind of a fuzzy why uh, is it not sharp that's because uh, you know it's 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 the concepts of uh, you know pressure volume temperature becomes more and more concrete the more particles you add mm -hmm. you know it's it's like asking uh, you know uh, going into the domain of biology at what point do you expect the organism to be in some sense conscious so do you go from you spoke about virus to cells the living cell yeah. is that transition sharp or not uh i wouldn't say it is sharp uh because even in the transition zone mm -hmm. there are multiple organismal states mm -hmm. okay mm -hmm. so even in the primitive cellular forms mm -hmm. there are multiple states mm -hmm. so i would say the 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 transition has been shallow mm -hmm. however there is a transition so where at the point of transition you have the system where why it, i think by by very nature the entropy that shitabur was mentioning entropy has to be facilitated in a way that it's a very a, tentative a, kind of transition from a very different world to a very different world what about it has to be a distribution 
It has to be distribution. Mm-hmm. It is not a point state. It has to be a distribution. It, it has a statistical characteristic. Absolutely. So, so, so in a sense, the question you're asking, I guess, uh, to Professor Rao is, what's the minimum ingredients you need to have life, right? In a way. And, and I don't think there's a you know, unique answer to that. You know, no, you, you I, I, think, have, yeah. I think even if that answer is correct, yes. and it, surely it is, Professor Rao is saying, and so we take it uh, at that, the, the interesting question is why? Like, for example, in your context, Rajneesh, mm-hmm. when you go from, you know, there are different phonemes and some of them make sense and some of them don't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you may say, no, nah, and it means something and you say, no, nah, and it, sometimes maybe it means something and doesn't mean something. And equally, the transition from sense to nonsense. Is it sharp or is it tentative again? And why are all of these transitions so tentative? And is, 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 is the word of linguistic meaning also a st- statistical kind of world? Does it... Uh, no, I, I think uh, uh, when we take this uh, issue in the context of language, mm-hmm. we are entering into a more complicated area. Uh, complicated is welcome. Yes. Let's go there. <laughs> yeah. Because, you see, language is not something which is mechanical, that you create and you use it and uh, it, people it understand. It feels like even biology isn't mechanical. It's not mechanical. <laughs> it is mechanical. It is nothing but mechanical. <laughs> so, yeah, true. Mm. So, uh, you can't create it artificially. Uh-huh. So when you are t- uh, talking about language, you are talking about your whole self. You know, it is within you, uh, within locate. It is not outside. It is uh, located or it emanates from our consciousness uh-huh. or uh, from our intelligence. Uh-huh. Indian grammarians would tell you this is Buddhist buddhi me istit. So you are talking about your whole inner self uh-huh. and how it interacts with this. External reality or internal reality, and that the world interaction of is not sharp. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think the question is why isn't this transition from sense to nonsense in this context sharp? Uh, in a way, uh, nonsense is also a sense. We can okay. say, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because when you say, for example, I just uh, give you an example that uh, a rabbit's horn. Yeah, is it uh, is it uh, meaningful? Does it have any sense or it is nonsense? So, you are use, when you use language, you mean something. Whether it is sense or nonsense, doesn't matter for a user. You mean to say that it, such so things doesn't exist. That's sure. why you are using this expression. Mm. So, we are not saying that there is a, sh- um, a sharp um, divide between sense and nonsense. Uh, I mean... Whenever you use a, uh, uh, whenever you use language, mm-hmm. uh, it contains something, and the meaning is not just confined or cons- uh, re- restrained by, you see, our um, world which we know. We always try to transcend whatever we have already known. Right. And uh, see the creative use of language, particularly in the domain of literature. Mm-hmm. Literature doesn't simply describe this world, the world of our uh, uh, daily experience in which we live and which we move and all. It always takes us beyond or within, which we which is not uh, uh, known for uh, to us for. So you're so saying far. in the context yeah. of the rabbit's horn that you spoke about, it's possible to refer to the non-existent, yeah. almost. That is the meaning. That is its meaning. So even that though is, it doesn't. Hmm. 
Interesting. I think maybe we'll get back to yeah, that in some form, yeah. Shita Bro. Yes, please. Yeah. Going back to the question you were asking, why is the transition not sharp? I think the answer lies in what Professor Rao mentioned: is the distribution. You need a certain set of interactions to come together in the right way. You know, everything has what, to. What again? The operative word is certain set, right? So, yeah. So, so you know, you know, it, it's like. they have to gel together in a way such uh-huh. that they form some kind of a you know feedback a correct feedback loop uh-huh. and so the thing is that you know the more elements that you bring in the mix the more likely that you're going to have you know such a feedback loop so it's probabilistic statistical mm. yeah exactly mm. so so you know you could have it with let's say 100 Uh-huh. provided they are you know set up just right uh-huh. but it's it's a very sensitive thing uh-huh. but you know if you have a 10000 then just by chance some of you know 100 of them could come together in that specific configuration so you're just increasing the probability that that things going to come about you know statistically more and more likely as you bring more and more elements together let me ask together. you this shitab bro and changing tracks just a little bit let's look at graphite and diamond mm-hmm. made of carbon hopefully right. both of them Now the carbon in the graphite and the diamond are are both of them the same atoms, or the atoms also change in some way, just in the way no, they, they, are, they are the same atoms. They are. Yeah. So it's just the configuration in which you arrange these atoms which makes the difference between graphite and carbon, right? So carbon has this very crystal. Uh, sorry, uh, graphite and diamond. Diamond mm. has this crystalline st- structure, mm. whereas graphite is arranged in this layers, yeah. which is very different. Yeah. But if you go down to the atomistic level, they're identical. Yeah, okay. and they're identical in every single way. They are identical atoms. So if you look at the parts, you yeah. cannot really differentiate between diamond and graphite. So what happens, Shitabro? Let's go back to the Big Bang. When if one subscribes to that view for a second, sure. Obviously, we we did not start off with the kind of variety we have today. Yeah. And who knows where we are going in mm-hmm. several millions of years later? Yeah. So where does this dizzying variety set in, and is it a increasing process of speciation are we going to have just more and more particles more and more combinations can we think of it as a straight line uh, how how does one think of this because it seemed like it started from some kind of a hole right and it, it yeah. we are, we are in a interesting yeah, I mean, place it, where we have all kinds of things around us I mean, you you're bringing up a very interesting idea the idea of evolution that the evolution is not only in the biological world but it's also in the physical world i mean right. right from the day the universe started probably you know in terms of big bang or something else we we are still not quite sure uh, we have you know been seeing an evolution so the, towards yeah. increasing complexity so that increasing complexity initially was only at the physical level but then with the creation of uh, biomolecules like you know uh, nucleotides with the creation of polypeptides but they come much later don't they of course but it's all you know it, it's not like you know you had evolution only once of course or, so true. so you have a, you have a continuing evolution but some kind of a last scattering surface when did it like all separate together when you know maybe the equivalent of last universal yes. common ancestor or I whatever i was just stuck with the example that you gave graphite mm. and diamond we should mm. realize that in graphite and diamonds atoms don't exist atoms have become something else they don't exist hmm. atoms of course exist but they are they, they they don't have atoms as atoms they've changed because of the way Absolutely. they are configured together correct so mm-hmm. the mystery doesn't exist there because individual carbon atoms do not exist as individual atoms they exist as a macroscopic entity yeah it's very and it's a different entity mm-hmm. right so mm-hmm. when all this put together the macroscopic entity has become a different property right and therefore 
the question of how the atom has become different doesn't arise the atom has become something different now it has become something different right and mm. the transition that we were talking about are all transitions which are dictated by statistical laws yeah unlike the transition where a toggle switch is either on and off yeah an electrical switch is either on and off yeah there are only two states but yeah. all the interesting transition that we are talking about either in the language or in the universe or in biology mm. these are all the transition that are governed by statistical laws mm. and therefore mm. by very innate nature it has to be a distribution so But let's make it slightly more complicated shitabron maybe we'll go back to you if you allow this uh, you know when talks about matter energy equivalence sometimes um, there was a point in time probably when it was mostly energy and less matter um is it nonsensical to say that energy is statistical in what sense um, um i mean there are no particles when it's only energy isn't it yeah and uh, what exactly what is that nature of transition from energy to matter is do you know what i mean like when have we gone from is it is it fair and sensible to think of energy as being a part in some way what is energy in this context that we're discussing the relationship between whole and part in right so when you say interactions yes is some kind of an exchange of energy would that be fair to say uh, yes what yes. exactly is an interaction for example how would you yeah. abstract so the, it so the interaction could be of course of very different types mm -hmm. so um at the level of particles they could be exchanging energy they could be exchanging momentum uh but you know if you go down uh, go up to the level of uh, for example ecological systems they are you know exchanging biomass you might say uh -huh. uh, in in a sense yeah. or at the level of societies they are exchanging uh, something completely non physical right so so they are exchanging ideas they are exchanging memes and uh, you know and sometimes it could also be physical like they could be actually exchanging biological contagion yes so it's the process of exchange which is of interest the not particularly what they're exchanging is the process of exchange mm. right and do you see emergent behavior even in ecological systems in social systems absolutely and in fact when uh, professor rao was mentioning this example of lego and i was thinking of you know how actually ecological systems are constructed uh -huh. uh, so so the lego example uh, if you bring it over there you find that which pieces of lego you actually use first in some sense decides which pieces would come later yeah. right so so you know like uh, we so there's an element of sequencing there absolutely mm -hmm. you know you, history is important yeah. so so <laughs> so as you bring in more and more species as you know a particular for example consider an island which is gradually being inhabited by new species mm -hmm. so as new species come to the island and you know set up shop they open up new niches which can be occupied by yet newer species so the sequence bit we were speaking about the how vijara um the sequence sequencing seems to be important it's not just which parts are together Absolutely. but also the sequence in which they and, come and, together and, and the manner in which they come right and and it is of course driven by historical contingencies because yes. you cannot control who is going to come now and who is going to come later so what's the equivalent of this historical contingency in physical systems is there has there been some historical contingency in the way a certain molecule has come to be in the way a certain um let me ask it another okay. way right there are let's say 100 odd elements mm -hmm. so do all combinations of all of those 100 elements exist in molecular form they don't 
No, of course. So it depends on the physical chemical laws right. uh, that you have associated with, you know, those things. Mm. Uh, but it's an interesting question you bring up, which is like, you know, could the universe have evolved in some other way? for example. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there are, of course, such scenarios mm-hmm. that, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, why is it that, you know, we are sitting here doing this chat show? I mean, is it in some sense inevitable that the moment the Big Bang happened, billions and billions of years later, four individuals would have, you know, sat down and th- done this chat show? Or could other futures have been possible, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it seems, you know, that indeed other futures would have been very much possible, which, you know, in fact brings us to this other question that, you know, how is it even possible that, you know, that extremely unlikely events happen to occur together such that billions of years later, we are actually sitting here and discussing those possibilities? Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, of course. I think uh, maybe we come to you, Rajneesh. That's so mm-hmm. interesting, Shabro. Yeah. Maybe we draw you out into the world of matter, where, you know, I think you were a little reluctant to even take words into the realm uh, of no, no, no. scriptal. <laughs> but uh. how do you think of matter and what does philosophy have to say about it? And uh, is there an equivalent of matter-energy equivalence? Is it a settled issue? Is it a settled question? Um, and is there an equivalence at all in the first place? Or would you say that everything is atomistic? Uh, how would how would different strands of philosophy think about that? Actually, uh, if you take... Uh, uh, Indian philosophical systems mm-hmm. uh, they talk about these things at length in fact uh, the relationship uh, between uh, matter and substance mm-hmm. and uh, one solution or one uh, say uh, principled position which you call is that uh, the ultimate principle as you know Brahman is the ultimate principle there and uh, this is realized something as uh, not only in uh, the concept uh, like Brahman, but also what we know in Kashmir Shaivism as Paramashiva. Mm-hmm. So the world, it is full of energy. And uh, th- that's the whole concept of this uh, Ardhanarishwara in a philosophy, you know, and the whole dance, uh, cosmic dance, which sure. is taking place. Uh, in the mac- in the micro at the micro level and the also at the macro level so uh, f- a philosophical position is that but what's the philosophical position on this relationship between whole and parts uh, you see there are two in, in in the context of matter in the context of matter right so uh, matter uh, if you are talking about matter uh, as the ultimate entity mm-hmm. i mean that constitutes the whole so uh, this is uh, the part and whole relationship there becomes uh, redundant in that sense that... Uh, so you don't distinguish between the two? Is that what you're saying? At, at that level, it is uh, because when you talk about part, it must be part of something. So a part implies a whole. Uh, part implies a whole, uh, logically also. So when we are saying that this is part, part cannot be absolute. It must be part of something. No, so but way, I, mean, I mean, that's that, that, that's just the linguistic interpretation. But uh-huh. if you, let's say, we go back to the case uh-huh. of the phoneme, we spoke about na. Mm-hmm. So if, the, if there was just na, you know, we spoke about, speak about om, for example, mm-hmm. it could mm-hmm. be only that, right? Why is there something See, else? Um, uh, even at the level of phoneme or word or so, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, I told Does you... Does a phoneme anticipate morphemes and words? You definitely, know what I mean? Definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, because uh, when you are talking about parts, 
parts are not uh, absolute in themselves but they they expect a kind of hierarchy Uh, so far f- from phone- uh, phoneme to words words to sentence sentence to discourse like that mm-hmm. so it it uh, at every level you have a part for example word become the part of uh, sentence just like phoneme become the part of word so it expects it expects in what sense do you mean that when you say it expects yeah what do you because, mean because uh, it is uh, it is realized as whole and uh, these parts are just the uh, just inferences they are inferred out of that whole the parts are inferences of the whole yeah they are inferable so uh, does 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 a fundamental physical particle anticipate or expect another physical particle It, no I, i hope it's not a stupid question yeah, it's I mean, it almost uh, certainly <laughs> is but <laughs> i'm not sure what you mean by anticipate um, I, i mean i mean it in the same sense in which a, a phoneme seems to expect or anticipate other phonemes to constitute Because a word you see in language uh, particularly in the context of language there is a uh, something some, something is called sound pattern uh-huh. sound pattern so Uh, it is not just uh, abrupt that any sound will come after any, any one sound uh, there is a pattern and uh, linguists like chomsky and halle they worked in this that area uh, their famous book is sound pattern in english uh-huh. so it can be done in uh, with respect to a particular language but oh, that's the reason why there's the yeah. alphabetic structure and you go from ker to ker to ker to i mean i mean there's a reason why or is that just incidental no no it is not that because uh, when we create our alphabet system uh-huh. it is uh, on certain principles like principle of uh, manner and uh, effort sure. Um, uh, sure. and place of articulation place of articulation and manner of articulation so uh, we arrange them uh, just for uh, the sake uh, sake of convenience and analysis we arrange them uh, according to certain principles sure. i think we'll get to that no, but i can see uh, you know like uh, analogical similarity between uh, the linguistics uh, complexity and the complexity in biology and physics that we were talking about because you could in principle think of you know uh, the systems problem in language is asking so you have this finite set of syntactic rules yeah. and you have finite set of elements and how you you know put them all together essentially opens up infinite possibilities but not all of which makes sense yes right so which interactions are meaningful and which interactions are not which brings us to professor rao's question which he asked at the right at the beginning how you set up all this com- molecules which make up a cell is extremely important you know to you know uh, whether the cell would be at all functional or not not all ways of you know putting together the molecules would make it a functional cell mm. and so the, i can ask the same questions about language that you know how exactly you use this finite set of rules to arrange this finite set of words in order to create sentences some of them work some of them don't and the interesting question is which interactions work which interactions don't and the questions that we asked about historical contingencies matter very much because different languages have different you know ways in which these interactions work so presumably these are and what are the underlying con- principles at work when some things work and when some when some things don't why are some genes discarded why are some syllables discarded why are some molecules discarded um clearly i mean 
it's it's something that we can discuss for two hours maybe yeah. right uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's but, a long discussion but i, yeah. I you know like for example one of the uh, theoretical ideas that we for example what are the underlying to, principles that's we're trying to go to yes. the level of principles right not so, so for example manfred eigen when he was talking about this question of origin of life brought up all this very interesting concept of auto uh, catalytic cycles uh-huh. and he said that you know somehow you have to have this individual elements come together to form some kind of a feedback loop where each is promoting the further production of the other right and so if you can set it up such that feedback loop from what to what okay so you have let's say several different molecules and each is capable of let's say stimulating another uh-huh. right and so if you have uh such a cycle set up where a is stimulating b b is stimulating c c is stimulating for the production of d and so on and finally z is promoting for the production of a you have a, a kind yes, of a, a circularity a virtuous the, loop in yes. which each of them is stimulating the production of others mm-hmm. and in a sense stimulating production of itself and that in a sense is a characteristic of life maybe Absolutely. it's yeah. vitalism yeah. it's yeah. some kind of well i wouldn't call it vitalism because it has a lot of baggage yeah, associated lots of baggage with, with that terminology <laughs> yeah, yes. sure sure but sure i would say that that definitely like you know tells you how interactions is the key concept behind you know life or emergence of any kind of complexity even even social complexity you know why is it that we had suddenly states developing in egypt and mesopotamia uh, at uh, you know like s- somewhere in the third millennium right so so uh, somehow you know you had the right amount of complexity being uh, you know coming around because you had you know enough number of individuals coming together creating the right kind of interactions where essentially you had enough amount of surplus uh, being you know created which allowed you to create bureaucracies which you know we, which really don't do anything useful work like you know producing food or something but they're important for organizing it's very interesting you use the word surplus right yeah. so yeah yeah so yeah. so so you you need and sometimes it could be just cognitive surplus it could just be Absolutely. of society having right yeah Yeah, yeah. In, and in fact, it's cognitive surplus which allows us to, you know, understand complexity. Because you know, essentially, if we didn't have cognitive surplus, we'd all be, you know, doing, you know, something which something is immediately useful, yes. right? And <laughs> not not trying to speculate about the origin of the universe or, for that matter, the origin of life. Right, right, right. Rajneesh, I'm keen to go back to you yeah. before we go to Professor Rao mm-hmm. for another question. When we think of, let's say, the Nyaya school, mm-hmm. it seems to believe that everything is real and what is not real is not there. Yeah. uh the more atomistic sense of the world mm-hmm. um can you talk about that a little bit because there are some interesting questions buried in there uh right uh for nyaya the uh, concept padarth mm-hmm. padarth if you translate it literally uh it will be padasya uh, artha this is how in sanskrit you can say meaning of a word okay. but that meaning of a word also relates to an object so padarth also means object okay so for them meaning must have certain uh, it must denote certain objects and this object must be real this object must be real because uh, for a nayika uh, there are two conditions to qualify for a padarth or object um, meaning of a word one is uh, they call it uh, their terminology is giyatva knowable no- okay and another is abhideyatva that is nameable uh, 
ओके सो नोएबल एंड नेमेबल टुगेदर कॉन्स्टिट्यूट द मीनिंग ऑफ ए वर्ड वर्ड मीन्स इन्फ्लेक्टेड वर्ड और वर्ड विच हैज ए पोटेंशियल टू डिनोट समथिंग एंड दैट डिनोटेशन बिकम्स ऑब्जेक्ट सो दैट्स वाई इन द डिस्कशन वी टॉक्ट अबाउट रेबिट्स हॉर्न सी दिस इज वेरी इंटरेस्टिंग बिकॉज रेबिट्स हॉर्न डजेंट एग्जिस्ट Yes, but rabbit does exist. Horn, horn also exists. Horn also exists, but this relationship is void. This relationship doesn't hold between the two. So, uh, but why is a linguist thinking about a rabbit horn? You have to just suppose to ask a biologist. <laughs> horn tiger, <laughs> rabbit horn. Sky flower. Let me finish that. Sky flower. These are the. Someone just picked up the wrong problem. I mean, there are many combinations that are void. Huh. So uh, that's hmm. why uh, we have been just discussing why certain syllables are allowed or certain syllables are not allowed in that sequence. Mm-hmm. Be- that. Uh, Uh, confirms our view that these syllables are of a holistic system mm-hmm. so uh, some are allowed there and some are not allowed there Th- this is not our choice that we make a whole or we so make a system so when you say allowed or not allowed it see it, it it conforms to a certain set of laws i mean uh, i'm not talking in terms of human intervention into sure it. we get yeah. that um but allowed by whom by what it is system uh, it is a whole that is given we, it is nitya in that sense it is given mm-hmm. uh, we don't know who created it maybe you accept god or don't doesn't matter sure, you know sure, it is sure. there simply it is there so we call it siddha we call it established or we call it given just given so certain things are uh, permissible there as certain things are not allowed or permissible in that context sure interesting so sir now maybe we go to you and you know when we i mean you know you you work at the level of genes and the microscopic uh and the unicellular in many ways are new kinds of holes to be expected in this super long oh, run this is a fascinating and what what drives that okay so what you are asking is essentially we have a design now yes in this universe and your question is is this the only design that is possible yes Now, and ha- clearly you refer to evolution so one assumes right, that evolution right. is always happening right, right. i want to put this in perspective uh-huh. we are part of a universe yeah but i must remind all of us that there is also a raging debate going on whether this is the only universe yes in fact in that context there is a theory that is coming up coming from inflation theory of cosmology that there is a multiverse multiverse we are part of multiverse True. yeah mm-hmm. now in that context if we are part of this universe we have come about as a design the way we are because of the situations because of the context the way And because of the historical contingency absolutely mm-hmm. there is a time axis mm-hmm. and the time axis took us to the point that where we are if the conditions were different if the conditions are different in a different universe there is no guarantee that the design will be the way it is morphologically it could be something completely different right which is yeah. so therefore if you ask me a question whether this is a unique design that is possible my answer would be probably not it is contingent to I the context i think the important word there is probably why do you say certainly not why don't you say certainly not i why, why? I, i want to keep some window open 
for uniqueness of the design because i do not know what the other designs are but you also at the same time presuppose when you say probably uh, that other other designs won't come to be for a variety of reasons whatever those laws might be or hmm. you know from, the, from yeah. the methodology of science that we have learned yeah when the unknown is so much unknown we don't want to capture it by saying it is so but professor Rao, i mean i'm very interested by what you just said you know like are you then saying that life is inevitable because you know we could have thought of other <laughs> universes in which life is not even possible because the physical constants are different absolutely absolutely so this is almost a very uh, mysterious situation we are run, we have run into the possibility the physical possibility of life evolving to the stage that we have is almost close to zero yeah and it has happened and the question is whether it can happen in some other and universe and that's the reason for your word probably that's right interesting so interesting it is a very 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 rare occurrence that we are all part of or But, again or it could be an, a very anthropocentric take absolutely so thing. so there's this <laughs> anthropic cosmological principle yes. which is you know so, somewhat of Marx a principle or so, somewhat of a you know like a dampener of all this philosophical speculation that you know the only reason that we are even speculating on this question is that those physical constants just happen to be right yes. for us to eventually come about and talk about this questions Interesting. so you know it's not so not big of a surprise that will let me ask you something because it looks like a possible answer to this could be very interesting when you look at a zebra mm -hmm. and the patterns that are there on a zebra yeah and you go and if you were to ask professor rao and give a cell of a zebra is there any way he would predict the patterns on the on the zebra or a giraffe I don't think so because not you know the how does this, that happen this patterns are coming about through you know morphogen uh, concentration gradients which are essentially only makes sense what when you're looking happens? at when you're only looking at the level of the tissue right yes. so so in fact if you look at the whole problem of development of a cell uh -huh. right you know of course the cell starts off as a you know single cell you know and then it divides it keeps dividing and up to some point it's still all identical cells uh -huh. but at some point a switch is you know thrown and you have differentiation occurring where you know one part of this multicellular body starts becoming different from another part yeah right? and so the uh, conventional idea is that essentially this is all coming about because of concentration gradients of various proteins which cause further genes to be thrown on or off so you know think about it like a very complicated switching network you know i i'm sure professor rao would be able to mm -hmm. explain this much better than me but as a physicist you know i try to think of this as just a network of switches so which can switch each other on and off So it's a computational kind of thing almost. Absolutely, I kind of tend to think of it as a biocomputation. It's right. a computational issue essentially. Mm. The the information is encoded in the genome, mm -hmm. and when the system starts with a single cell, and when cells divide and become initial, uh, very initial system, some kind of symmetry breaking happens. Yeah. Intrinsically within the cell. Yeah. And the symmetry breaking within the cell at the molecular level. Yeah. gives rise to what is called anterior end and posterior end of the animal yeah I mean, and and whether that symmetry breaking is stochastic i would want to say yes but it is robustly repeated in that animal because that animal develops into that animal repeatedly so there is something robust about it but it is 
governed by stochastic rules are there okay let me let me ask this question and it's addressed to all of you in a way are there non stochastic systems there must be because you know we we kind of going back to that stochasticity probabilistic uh, statistical nature of a lot of these things the question flipped on its head is yeah. that are there non stochastic systems at all are there non emergent phenomena at all no so so the thing you know is what that, i mean yeah i know but you know that the thing is the emergence is not uh unique to stochastic systems sure uh, i would kind of you know associate emergence more with nonlinearity okay you know so so you know like what is nonlinearity nonlinearity means that you can no longer take two solutions of the system add them up and that again is a solution so this additivity of solutions break down when you have nonlinear systems and i think that is a crucial element towards having emergent features the fact that when you bring in hundreds of elements together you suddenly have qualitatively new features arising in the system yeah and so all you need is nonlinearity in a even in a deterministic system then you'd get emergence but the stochasticity actually introduces further degrees of freedom well, where does nonlinearity come from so the nonlinearity is like you know how exactly are you setting up the interaction so so for example you could you could have thought of a very simple situation where let's say uh, a population which is growing uh-huh. is its growth its rate of growth is just proportional to the population uh, Death rate. which it has at currently right okay. in which case it's a very trivial system sure. depending on the growth rate it would of course keep either growing unboundedly sure. or it will just shrink to zero sure. okay but we all know that because of limitations in resources because of intra species uh, competition sure. eventually you know it can't keep growing with that same growth rate so yes. the growth rate is going to taper off as its population reaches the limits of an environment so, lon- so that linearity is linearity right so the rate of growth so the growth is will not be linear but there would be some kind of a saturation or some kind of a dipping down which now introduces a nonlinearity the moment you have nonlinearity all kinds of interesting possibilities open up you could have oscillations the population could actually fluctuate right. and sometimes it could fluctuate erratically you have deterministic chaos right which is for all external so purposes indistinguishable from noise that's so so, so interesting is, so so one one question is is stochasticity having a deterministic origin <laughs> is noise coming about purely because of deterministic laws yeah no that's very why don't we spend the last 5 minutes speculating on the long term future let's just roll forward 1000 years what about what we're talking about what about our conversation today is likely to be completely wrong 1000 years later are these principles which are likely to abide uh and how different do you expect the future to be professor rao we start with you okay let's say we go 1000 years later yes what would we be like or what would we be thinking like what would the world be like yeah you know without in this whole and part context correct correct i think uh obviously we will know a lot more details that's given sure the content <laughs> will increase sure whether our ability to process that content into 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 meaningful directions uh-huh. is the real question yes and i would want to believe that we would be in a position to understand our own designs much better than because we would i think evolve into non local selves we are highly localized now wow we That's think as something. individuals mm-hmm. but i think we are quickly reaching a limit so what is a non local bjrao i think we would 
we would want to spend thinking about the systems systems where we are part of a society we would think lot more about system of society we would think lot more about how lot of components become different when they are put together so we become more system centric i think cerebrally more altruistic yeah i would want to believe that because that's the only <laughs> way that's the only way to progress if we are progressing to 1000 years from now that means you have gone in the right direction right. otherwise we would die too soon 1000 years is a long time and if we can sustain 1000 years in the right direction i think we probably would have evolved into a stage where where we can live another 1000 years from there or maybe yeah, longer we would become non local entities it's very interesting rajneesh what's the future Uh, well again in the context <coughs> of the whole in part in the context of matter and in your specific situation the in a more linguistic sense i think when we are talking in terms of evolution we are taking time in a linear way mm-hmm. at 1000 years after this or so so uh, the first question is that when we are discussing every, uh, all such things on the scale of time and if the concept of time is linear um i mean is that questionable or not linearity of time time is cyclical or time is linear that's the one thing so when we talk about 1000 years from now uh, are we not saying that we will be completing a circle let us say uh, i'm not uh, taking it in terms of progress or so but uh, you see uh, indian uh, perspective when we add it the way it has been uh, put forth by the uh, thinkers in this uh, culture or so uh, there is no difference i'm re- sure. addressing to that problem of part and whole uh, there is no difference between pind and brahmand okay you know yat pinde tat brahmande this is the fundamental principle that which is uh, within Uh, at the individual level or micro level the world level. in a grain of sand or whatever the equivalent of yeah, sure yeah yeah so yeah. it is the same uh, so at that level uh, even that's why one of the sanskrit verses in upanishad says that uh, it is whole is uh, existent and whole means complete in itself if something is taken out of that ಪೂರ್ಣಮದೂರ್ಣಮದೂರ್ಣಮದೂರ್ಣಮದೂರ್ಣಮದೂರ್ಣಮದೂರ್ಣಮದೂರ್ಣಮದೂರ್ಣ
the systems aspect uh-huh. of you know how things work what's the future of complex systems yeah so uh, you know I, instead of looking at complex system i would actually say that you now i see in the next 50 years something very interesting happening uh-huh. you know we all know about you know this question about is ant colony an organism yes we can ask the same question about the human society you know with the present you know uh, mushrooming of you know the social net online social network right. and so on we are you know tending to see to, transition to some kind of a non local self almost Absolutely. Which, uh, so so we are seeing a transition towards you know much more connected some kind of a super organism mm-hmm. right so mm-hmm. would we see the natural culmination in having a human society itself behaving as an organism so that's a very interesting question whose uh, ramifications we would start seeing in and 50 years and it's interesting you say 50 years Absolutely and I I think we would see this in our lifetimes. Interesting. The the other interesting question which in fact pertains to this whole question of will we survive is the th- thing that you know now that we understand the emergence aspect uh-huh. of you know our interactions we are also having you know a transition to a new kind of complex system where the parts uh-huh. are able to understand the design to some sense of the whole uh-huh. and is able to tinker with this interaction uh-huh. so what happens to a complex system where the parts are not only interacting with each other but they're also able to meta interact they're able In to way, they're design the reverse feedback loop to the whole absolutely and right. this is a complex system that we have never ever come across ever right but once you have this kind of possibility so where new meta, interactions new information meta interactions right meta interactions what kind of you know emergent features do we expect from that and that i think is the burning question in you know systems level thinking right now very interesting i think that's a good note to end this on and we really appreciate you coming over and look forward to having you thank soon you. again thank, thank you thank you for making it take care